And while we were here, you know, talking to the guys at, at CMC, they said, yeah, you gotta go out, you know, take a look at Penske Cooper while you're here. So I did. So I came out and uh, visited the guys here. I just, I looked at this place and it's like, this is virgin skiing. It's just gorgeous. Um, it's not overbuilt. With Chicago Ridge, quite frankly, you know, in the future, the sky's the limit as to what happens here. Welcome to the storm. I'm your host, Stuart Winchester, back to Colorado today. First, your reminder to please subscribe to the free Storm Skiing newsletter at stormskiing.com. That is the heart of the storm and the very best way to get future podcasts and all of the other ski content that I produce. You can also follow the storm on Instagram or Twitter at Storm Ski Journal. First, some love for my sponsor, Mountain Gazette. Founded in 1966, Mountain Gazette is a large format biannual print title celebrating mountain culture. If you're familiar with the traditional Mountain Gazette from many years back, you are going to be shocked when you see this new format. It is an absolute monster. 16 and a half inches tall by 10 and three quarters inches wide. What has not changed from that old format Mountain Gazette is the incredible wide ranging writing and show stopping photography. I'll tell you what I mean. Issue 196, shipping in just two weeks, features a huge gallery titled The Last Days of Skiing in Afghanistan. Mountain Gazette connected with a photographer who captured what may be the last shots of skiing before the Taliban took over. This is the most powerful piece the magazine has done to date. But the range here in the Mountain Gazette is huge. Another gallery you will find in issue 196, Daniel Arnold, New York's most renowned street photographer, will roll out a gallery that conveys his impression of autumn in New York City. Do not miss this. You need to subscribe today to reserve your copy at mountaingazette.com. Enter code GOHIRE10, all one word, for 10% off subscriptions. That will ensure that you get those two stories and everything else in issue 196. Use code EASTCOAST, all one word, for 10% off everything else including vintage magazine covers, which make great art for your home office or living room. Mountain Gazette. When in doubt, go higher. Episode 59, Dan Torcell, President and General Manager of Ski Cooper, Colorado. All right, very excited to talk to my first Colorado indie today. There are a lot of things that intrigue me about Ski Cooper. It's a scrapper among giants, first of all. Ski Cooper's nearest neighbors are Breckenridge, Keystone, A Basin, Copper Mountain, Beaver Creek, and Vail Mountain. And yet, amid those titans, the ski area persists. Second, Ski Cooper has no snowmaking. It is one of only two ski areas in Colorado to make do without. Even Wolf Creek has a little snowmaking, so being able to go without it at all is fascinating to me. Third, the place has an amazing cat skiing operation, as you will hear. And finally, Ski Cooper may have the best season pass in the country. I have called it America's Hidden Mega Ski Pass, and you will see why today. This one's already long, one of the longer podcasts that I've done. So let's get right to it. My guest today has been the president and general manager of Ski Cooper Colorado since 2012. Ski Cooper sits at a base elevation of 10,500 feet and has 62 trails spread across 480 acres, served by five lifts on a 1,200-foot vertical drop. 
The mountain also operates Chicago Ridge Snowcat Tours, which serves 2,600 acres of terrain off Cooper's backside. Prior to joining the team at Ski Cooper, he spent his career at Powder Mountain, Utah, Tussie Mountain, Pennsylvania, and Sugarbush and Killington, Vermont. Dan Torsell is my guest. Dan, so good to connect with you again. Hey, thanks, Stuart. Great to, uh, great to be here. So, Dan, we talked a lot over the summer, but we really just focused on Ski Cooper's past, and we'll definitely get to that again today. But I want to go back to the beginning. I think you've had a really interesting career path. You grew up in a ski state. It wasn't Colorado, uh, but still a state with a strong passion ski culture. So tell us about growing up in Pennsylvania and how you ended up getting into skiing. Well, yeah, uh, Pennsylvania is an interesting skiing state. Uh, I think there's quite a bit more skiing there than most folks give credit. Um, you know, as a, as a kid, I, I just, you know, for whatever reason, I'm not sure why I, I always loved winter, you know, sledding, skating, shoveling snow even. Um, so I just had a passion for, for, for wintertime and for the snow. Um, and it, it just so happens that one of my uncles, uh, his name is Jim Kellerman, one of my mother's brothers, was a uh, trained here at Camp Hale and Ski Cooper and was a member of the 10th Mountain Division. So it's an interesting, an interesting twist, you know, how that, that whole thing happened. And um, probably my initial introduction, you know, to, to real skiing was just sitting as a, as a small child listening to him tell stories of, of when he was in the 10th Mountain Division training here at Camp Hale and Ski Cooper. Uh, then he got peripherally involved with uh, uh, an area called Schema, which eventually turned into Tussie Mountain. I know we'll probably talk about that a little bit later, but um, he got peripherally involved with, you know, trying to, to, uh, to keep that area going and get it reopened. Um, so that was, that really, you know, kind of uh, caught my, my interest, let's say. Um, then as far as, you know, how I, I continued, you know, as I got a little bit older uh, to become a skier, my older brother, Rick, uh, he was an outdoorsman, avid outdoorsman. He bought a pair of downhill skis and I thought, well, whatever he does, I got to do. He never actually became a, re a regular skier. Um, but I did, I bought the skis and strapped them on and skied down through the cornfields or whatever, you know, and, uh, it really, uh, got me excited. Got into high school when I was, I don't know, 14, 15 years old and joined our, our ski club. And my first uh, day on skis at a lift surf ski area was at Blue Knob. Um, oh, nice. in, yeah, in Claysburg, Pennsylvania, which I have such great memories of that place. So yeah, that's in a nutshell, that's kind of how the whole thing got started. <laughs> So you were in the ski club at high school, doing laps at Blue Knob. Uh, when did you decide that you wanted to actually make this thing into a career? You know, it was probably pretty early on, Stuart. I mean, you know, coming out of high school, um, you know, there was a lot of pressure to, to get a college education, um, you know, which I definitely took my time at. I took a few years off immediately and um, started – uh, school. I went to, to. I graduated from Penn State. Started school a couple of years after high school, and um, you know it was interesting. I wasn't sure what I wanted to study. Uh, thought it was going to be nuclear engineering for a while. Turns out I ended up graduating with a degree in the College of Earth and Mineral Sciences. I studied mostly petroleum and natural gas engineering, uh, mm -hmm. which was was a lot very interesting. Um, I, I must say I, I never put that specific education to work because. Um, 
I, I ended up not going there. I came to the ski industry. But, you know, to answer your question, you know, I think, you know, as soon as I got out of high school and, you know, got into, into college, I, I just thought, you know, this is this is OK. But all I want to do is be up on the mountain in the snow, you know, participating somehow in, in this business uh, that was, you know, built around the, the activity I love so much. Um, so, yeah, that was kind of it. You know, I love the mountains. I love the, you know, there were a lot of innovations in machinery and lifts and snowcats and everything back then, which I thought was cool. So that that's kind of how I ended up, uh, you know, making a decision to get into it as a career. Um, uh, just to continue a little tiny bit more on that, I, I did, you know, the entire time I was uh, going to school at Penn State, um, I worked at what was then Tussie Mountain, um, everything from flipping burgers to, you know, grooming, snowmaking, you name it, you know, small area. I did all those things. And I guess it was during that time that my real love for this thing, uh, you know, really came together. So when you left Penn State, when you graduated, did you go over to Tussie and say, hey, what opportunities do you have? I think I want to give this a run. Or did it take you a while to come back there? No, it took me a little while to come back. You know, I mean, I, I spent all begrudgingly a lot of time getting my college degree uh, because I kept taking, I kept taking time off too to work. It took me quite a while to get my degree. Um, and when I finally did finish up, um, I sent like three resumes into the oil and gas industry. And I, as my wife would tell you, I sent 50 of them into the ski industry. And, <laughs> you know, I really, I just, I wanted to, to, to reach out and, you know, be involved with a, a bigger area. Um, so you know, like as soon as I got out of school, um, I got a call back from uh, from Killington, and ended up uh, that was my first my first job after uh, I graduated from Penn State. So, yeah, that's uh, that's kind of how that whole thing happened. <laughs> so, t- so take us up to Killington now and compare that to working at Tussie. And Tussie's a nice little operation. You know, it gets it done in Pennsylvania, like most Pennsylvania ski areas. It's very scrappy, knows how to deal with marginal conditions. But Killington is a whole different world. So, what was it like landing there after after kind of getting your chops at uh, at Tussie? Yeah, well, the, the, actually, the very first place I worked was Powder Mountain in Utah. Okay, um, yeah, I, I went to school for. Uh, I think one one uh, trimester back then, and took one off to to go to Powder Mountain okay. uh, and spend the winter. So I, that was a um, that was a at that point a relatively small operation, a lot of acreage, but not a lot of visits, uh, but lots of snow, obviously, which is right. something, something I was not used to, by the way. Um, so yeah, from there to, to Tussie, you know, uh, that was an interesting transition. Uh, you know, that you bring up going from, from the operation at Tussie Mountain to um, going to Killington. Um, you know, I feel very strongly that I have learned a lot of different things at all the different areas that I've worked at. Um, I feel really blessed to have worked at, you know, a small area like Tussie where, you know, you've, you've really got to get down and dirty to make things happen. Um, you know, I had the, I was very lucky when I was there. Uh, it was, you know, just kind of reopening, transitioning. And, uh, you know, we did a lot of cool things there. Uh, we installed uh, a quad chairlift, which I was involved with, um, T T-bar, uh, lots of snowmaking, installation work and operation. Um, so it was, a, it was quite an education, you know, from the ground level. Uh, then, you know, I mean, I was so excited to, to, to be hired at 
Killington. I mean, I went to Killington over Christmas when I was a senior in high school. And, you know, back in those days, if somebody, somebody says, are you a real skier? And if you could say, yeah, I skied Killington, um, you know, it's a huge, <laughs> um, right. So, yeah. So, you know, moving from, from Tussie mountain in central Pennsylvania to, uh, to Killington was, was, you know, it was kind of a shock obviously to begin with. Um, but I, I gotta tell you, um, you know, I've worked at a lot of different places and I've loved things about each one of them, but I learned more about the actual operation of a ski area at Killington than I did anywhere. Um, those were the years, um, you know, Killington was hitting it out of the park with visits, you know, pro I was there from the mid eighties through the early to mid nineties in various you know positions and whatnot. But when I first got there, um, you know, Killington was, you know, I tell everybody, you know, they, Killington was on the cutting edge of just about everything that became the standard um, in the ski industry. Um, you know, I may be overstating that a little bit, but I don't think so. You know, we had an engineering department. We were, were developing. When I say we, I don't mean me. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> was, you know, we, we had an uh, engineering department that was, you know, doing R&D on, on snowmaking equipment. I mean, if you're in this business, everybody's, you know, very familiar with the K2000 3000 snow guns that they developed and, um, you know, just the whole operation and, and setup of loading and unloading areas and counting people, um, you know, on the ski lifts. Um, parking operations were phenomenal. We had, you know, like 12 parking lots, 12 miles apart. So, you know, it was like running a city there, um, right. particularly for the Northeast. So, yeah, you know, getting into all these things and, you know, feeling what what the influx of like uh, 20,000 skiers on a day is like was was quite uh it was quite a shock but I'll tell you I really truly learned a lot I mean the guys that were there um you know Press Smith was, was still there at the head of the operation Hank Lundy Dave Wilcox Lee Patno the list goes on and on and on I learned so much from those guys during the years that I was there um but yes, you know, to get back to your initial question, it was quite a, uh, a shift, uh, let's say, in, in from what I was used to to what, what I was doing there. But it was an invaluable experience, I think, for me. You know, Tim Cohey came on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, Dan, and I don't know how well you and Tim are acquainted, but he owns China Peak. And he talked about coming out to work in Sunday River. And he'd spent most of his career out west in California. And he came out to Sunday River uh, to work for Les Auden and ASC during that sort of heyday, that, that same period you're describing when things were just firing and the skiers were growing. And and he said he'd just never seen anything like it. W was there something about the, the energy of that era that, that just spawned this kind of greatness and, 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 and made you feel like you were part of something huge? Or, or was it just Killington? Like, what's your, what are your thoughts on, on that era and ASC and, and all the, the big players you had kind of coming together to really uh, ignite something special? Well, it was a very exciting period of time because, you know, we were, I guess I would say, you know, through the mid to late eighties, we we're sort of at the end of the pioneer period. Mm -hmm. You know, all these guys that I mentioned, uh, you know, at Killington, you know, had been doing this since what I felt was like the beginning of time. Um, you know, Press Smith and Royal Bythrill took chainsaws in, in their VW bus and, you know, started cutting <laughs> at Killington. And, you know, they had a a passion for that place and for this this business 
that not a lot of people have anymore. Um, you know, and it was just a, a time of of uh, exhilaration and you know opportunity. And um, you know, with the advent of snowmaking through that period, and you know the the the, the lift um, the lift infrastructure and everything that was being rolled out. Um, I, you know, it was, it was really exciting. Um, I, I don't know that I feel, uh, you know, I, I kind of feel like, uh, things kind of blew up a little bit in the ensuing years, whenever, um, we had the conglomerate, you know, areas growing together, ASC being one of them. Um, uh, a lot of great things happened by the way, you know, with us on an ASC. Um, obviously, you know, I ended up at Sugarbush for quite a while and, you know, Les did a lot of things there. Yeah, um, you know, quite an expansion there. It was it was incredible. You know what what got done there. Um, but yeah, that that period of time, I think the, the most exciting period was was when you know technology and everything was was uh, you know moving forward and moving upward. Um, and you know, like everything else, sometimes it gets out of hand, <laughs> which it had right. in some areas. Yeah, um, but I, I do think that 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 whole period of time set the stage for. For where we are today um and you know you can take a look and, and see the the conglomerates that have come and gone you know we've got two or three major ones today they all seem to be doing very well i think uh some lessons were learned you know through that period um uh, how quickly you can move and, and you know uh, how you should uh, go about something like that so so as invigorating as killington was dan you didn't stay forever why did you leave well that's a complicated story. You know, um, I actually went to Killington and uh, left for a couple of years. I went back and was the general manager then at Tussie Mountain. Um, and, you know, it was fun. One of the things that I've really loved doing, you know, during my career was, you know, taking things from, from, from bigger, more, you know, advanced areas and, and bringing them back to a smaller area. You know, I always wanted to, to be the, the head guy at Tussie because I grew up near there. Um, so I had this uh, number of years experience at Killington and learned so much. And I, I went back to Tussie and I implemented some cool things. You know, I realized we, we couldn't do everything like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, there were some, some critical things that we did do that uh, crossed over. Um, but then, you know, my wife and I started having kids. And um, we, you know, we got to a point where we thought, you know, it would be nice. Uh, we're, we're family people, you know, hometown guys and gals and all that. We thought it would really be nice, you know, for a number of years to have our kids growing up around, you know, their grandparents and aunts and uncles and everything. Um, so we, we kind of made a, it was, it was kind of a difficult decision we made, but, you know, we thought, well, you know, we're going to give this up for a while, maybe forever. I don't know. Uh, Cause we felt very strongly about the family connection. Um, so we did move back. I ended up doing a number of different things, um, was involved in various levels of construction, um, worked for uh, a company that did product engineering, high tech stuff, um, which was kind of cool. I was, you know, all over the United States, uh, selling that stuff and, uh, getting to be involved in some really interesting, uh, technological advancements along the way with some products we were working on. Um, and, did that for a while. Um, I was also, one of the cool things I got to do at Killington was I, I got involved with the Killington School for Tennis, which is mm. no longer alive, but uh, I did that for a number of years. And I, I also did some of that then back in Pennsylvania. 
Um, so got to do a lot of cool things. It was great. You know, the kids were around grandparents and, and relatives. But quite frankly, you know, the whole time um, I was away from the ski industry, I stayed involved with it. You know, I did some consulting, um, you know, tried to help a few areas in Pennsylvania and even uh, southern Vermont that, that had closed and were looking to reopen. Did a little bit of consulting there because I just could not let go of it. And one day, finally, I guess I was really not that chipper and happy about what I was doing <laughs> for a career. And my wife, Leslie, God bless her, said, you had better get back into the ski industry or I don't think I can deal with you anymore because <laughs> you're not happy doing what you're doing. And so that's that's how I ended up getting back in. I don't regret for a minute the years that we spent, you know, with uh, the kids' grandparents and being around family. Um, I got to do a number of interesting things. Uh, but it was time uh, for me to get back in the industry because, as I tell everybody, it's by far the most dynamic environment I've ever worked in. Um, something new every day, something different, something scary, something fun. You know, um, I just, I enjoy it. So, yeah, that, that's that's that whole whole period when I, when I left for a while. So... When you went back, you went back big, and I want to get to that in a moment. But first, you know, most of the listeners here, whether they've skied east or not, they know about Killington. It's the beast. It's a flagship of Powder Core. I think very, very, very few people are familiar with Tussie, and I know that's still one of your partners on the Ski Cooper Pass, which we'll talk about later. Uh, but talk about Tussie and and the importance of small ski areas like that to the industry of the whole and the health of the industry as a whole and to their local communities. Just reminisce on Tussie for a minute and just tell us about the place. Well, you know, it was, it was, uh, it was a, it's a neat little place. Sits about five miles um, outside of state college PA where Penn state's located. So it's got a nice little market there. Uh, great local community uh, with, you know, state college, my hometown of Belfont, which is about 10 miles away from there. Um, and it, it, it did become a very, uh, unique part of, you know, the local community. Uh, we had a very active, you know, uh, local ski club there, um, had a, a race club. Um, you know, what I tried to, to bring back from Killington to there was, let's just say, a little bit more of a professional operation, uh, you know, to leverage some of the, some of the things that Tussie Mountain offered. Quite frankly, the upper part of Tussie Mountain is very steep. I'm a bump mm. skier, so we, we did yep. uh, <laughs> We got the bumps going, yes. you know. and uh, Beautiful. Yeah, I tried to, you know, uh, bring all the departments, you know, up to a, a little higher standard, um, which was really a lot of fun. A little frustrating to the local folks, I believe, at first. But, you know, everybody seemed to, uh, to, to come to appreciate, you know, what we were trying to do there. And, you know, quite frankly, um, I think local ski areas – are huge in importance, you know, to our business. And I don't want to just focus on the fact, you know, I mean, we all went through the, the, the period of time, the phase when, you know, we call them all feeders, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. And you know, there, there is some merit to that concept. I think it's probably just as important, if not more important to have that, you know, the activity of downhill skiing available to, to your local community, you know, whether they decide to, to head to, you know, to Killington or, you know, Baylor, Cooper or wherever, um, you know, that's just kind of a, that's a benefit of the whole thing. But 
I really like, you know, what, what it brings from um, the, to, to the local area, I guess, in terms of, um, you know, the schools and, and everything else. I think it's, it's, it's very important. Um, but yeah, that, that's kind of my feeling. And I, I imagine that that's the sort of area that the way Greg Fisher described this to me, because he ran a little mountain called Mad River outside of Columbus. And he said, the season is short. It's only about 12 or 14 weeks, but you are on. You are open from nine in the morning till nine at night, every single day for that 12 to 14 weeks, because that's the season. And, and that is that night skiing is really when you are able to offer this to the local community in, in its fullest state. Yes. Yeah, it's you know you're straight out pretty much. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> from you know Christmas till however long into March you can make it. Hopefully, yeah. Right, right, and you don't have the staffing of, of a Killington or one of these other places to keep it going. So exactly. Um, so so you did come back. So so tell us about that. You came back big. Where'd you go? Uh, Sugarbush. Sugar one of the Bush best. Yep. And what were you doing up there? Oh. Um, Stuart, I think I did just about everything. <laughs> I, I was hired into a position that was uh, called general manager of Mount Ellen. Um, and I got to tell you, I, I absolutely unconditionally fell in love with Mount Ellen. It, it's a wonderful mountain. And I, I had such a great time there. Um, so that was, that was a blast, uh, you know, getting back in. Uh, to a position like that. And then I moved from there. Uh, we lost our vice president of food and beverage. Um, and so one day, Wynn Smith walks into my office with, I'm not sure who, Artie Merrill, maybe, I don't know who it was, and says, would you like to do something fun? <laughs> I said, I am already doing something fun. What do you want me to do? <laughs> And um, he asked me if I would take over um, the food and beverage department as director of food and beverage for a while um, because we, it was like, uh, uh, it was right at the very beginning of the season. And um, so I gave it some thought. And, you know, when, when, when the biggest boss makes a suggestion, it's not a suggestion or, you know, whatever. Right. <laughs> so I said, of course, I will give this a try. My experience in that area was fairly limited. I did have some experience, but um, so yeah, I did that for uh, that ski season, and I made a pact with myself. And you know, when and I had discussions that uh, I would make it a priority. You know, my my number one job, not only to run the department to the best of my ability, but to to find um, another director with a lot of experience who could come in. And um, we also. Uh, <laughs> During the first month of my tenure there as director of food and beverage, uh, we lost our executive chef too, and uh, so that was uh, like the week before President's Week, and you know what that means in the state of Vermont, right? So that was there was a lot of juggling and you know panic and and whatnot you know through that whole thing. So yeah, I did that, and we got through the ski season fairly successfully. And you know, I then went on my mission to find uh, uh, a food and beverage director, VP, whatever the position was, and I forget. But I was uh, able to 
uh, be involved in hiring a guy named Chris Clemens, a great, great guy. He's currently at Jay Peak um, as the VP of food and beverage for Steve Wright there. Um, hired him and brought in Jerry Nooney as the executive chef um, at Timbers and for the whole resort. So that, I will tell you, was a very interesting experience. You know, I think we had 12 food outlets and um, with my limited experience. Uh, fortunately, we had some really good people, you know, working in the department. And um, so, yeah, that was uh, that was phase two. And once, <laughs> once that was was completed, there was kind of a reshuffle of everybody um, in management at the resort. And I guess it was late 07, I think it was. Um, we, I was asked to become the um, vice president of base area services for the resort for both sides, for uh, Lincoln Peak and, and uh, Mount Ellen. And that was interesting. Uh, sounds pretty simple, but there were, I think I had 12 departments. Oh, wow. <laughs> including ski school and, and race and, you know, guest services and, roads and the tennis facility and, you know, on and on and on and on. Um, but that was a cool experience too. Um, I got to work with a lot of, uh, really good people there. Um, you know, we get to do some cool projects. Um, and along the way, it's very important to mention that, um, I got to be involved with the, um, redevelopment project at Lincoln Peak you know, Claybrook and, uh, you know, that, that whole, the gatehouse lodge and, and all of the, uh, you know, new infrastructure and everything that was involved with that. I, I got to be involved with that, um, overseeing all the site work and then some of the, uh, some of the construction. Um, so it was, it was a blast. I did that. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I was very fortunate and very blessed, uh, to be able to do so many different things and learn so much, uh, at Sugarbush also. Not so much about mountain operations. I already felt very strongly about that. I got to leverage that when I was, you know, uh, doing the Mount Ellen thing um, at Sugarbush. Uh, but yeah, the, the experiences, you know, and, and watching how you uh, take something and, and, and make it grow into something you want it to grow into. It was a lot of fun. So it sounds like you had quite an education at Sugarbush and we're ready to take on your own resort. Before we get to Ski Cooper, I just want to ask you about working under Wynn Smith. And, and in particular, I think Wynn was very good at emphasizing community and building a community, right? He didn't come in as someone who knew all about how to run a ski resort, uh, but he did have some leadership characteristics, I think, that translated very well to that. So you just talk a little bit about working with and under Wynn Smith for so long and, and what you learned about running an operation and growing an operation and building a community around an operation from him? Yeah. You know, Wynn is a very interesting guy. He's, he's a great guy. Um, you know, I would be lying to you if I said we didn't have a few differences of opinion along the way, but I have a, I have a tremendous amount of respect for his drive. You know, he came in there, I think he began skiing there in the, in the sixties in high school or college or whatever. Um, and was very passionate about sugar bush. Um, you know, I, I think that he was a perfect fit for the, for the whole mascara mountain revival, if you will. Right. Um, you know, um, uh, you know, when is a very high profile guy, everybody knows that, 
uh, been around, you know, with uh, with Merrill Lynch and his positions there. Uh, and yeah, he he definitely came in. Uh, he had a vision. He was a real good, uh, you know, community builder, as you said, Stuart. Uh, you know, and his, his whole concept in marketing and everything else was to create raving fans. I used to get so sick of hearing that. <laughs> but <laughs> I'll tell you what, you know, uh, in retrospect, I look back and, and you know, it was definitely um, a very worthwhile uh, adventure, you know, building raving fans. And um, yeah, and in terms of, uh, you know, what, what Wynn did there and, you know, working with him, it was it was always exciting. Like I said, we did, I didn't always agree with everything. I I was you know selfishly you know all I wanted to do was to to continue some level of development at Mount Ellen, uh, but that was you know later. <laughs> yeah. Coming now, I think at some point. Um, right. But you know he really he really had his sights set on um, doing what he did at, at Lincoln Peak in particular. And, um, you know, built that, that support from the community and not, not just the local or regional community. I mean, you know, the whole Northeast, um, I, I think he developed quite a following there. Um, he had some very, really good people working for him. Like you said, when didn't come in, you know, uh, swinging the sword saying, I know how, you know, mountain operations work. So I'm going to, you know, tell you guys, no, actually, you know, he, he, he jumped in. He liked to wear his black vest and his radio like the rest of the guys, you know, <laughs> get out there and be a part of it. You know, and he was involved every day in, you know, our snow planning meeting. And uh, he was very, uh, you know, hands-on engaged with everything while he was, you know, building this, uh, this loyal fandom um, and turning what was an aging resort into, you know, a pretty nice cutting-edge place again. Um, so, yeah, and so... To, to sum it up, you know, working for Wynn and with Wynn, you know, it was exciting. You know, we in 2008, I don't know if you remember, I guess it was the 50th anniversary of uh, the opening of, of Sugarbush of Lincoln Peak. Um, and we had just, you know, completed the, the Lincoln Peak base area. So everything was fresh and brand new, big hotel and et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, um, we ended up hosting the Today Show live. Wow. And I think it was the only time, maybe to this day, that all of the uh, all the folks uh, that are on the Today Show were on site, off site. <laughs> you know, wow. they were all there. You know, Katie Kerrigan and you know the whole crew. Um, yep. So that that was exciting. You know, putting on putting on that show. Um, so yeah, I mean, you know, Win was kind of bigger than life. You know, and he he really uh, he embraced what he wanted to do. Um, I think he's a, he's truly a good man. Um, I know his family, um, you know, I look forward to seeing him, you know, whenever we used to be able to go to the NSAA shows in person, Right. <laughs> always look forward to, you know, seeing him, having a drink, whatever. Um, so yeah, yeah. Uh, it was a great experience for me. I, I did, I learned a lot about the rest of the ski business, you know, that I, that I didn't know. So it sounded like you were ready to go. So tell us, how did the opportunity come up to, to lead Ski Cooper, move out to Colorado? Whole different thing, whole different scene, but it's your own mountain. How'd that happen? Well, yeah. You know, I, I think I had, I had learned and done everything that I could at Sugarbush at that point. I was probably feeling stale that it was time to move on. Wynn probably looked at me and said, yep, yep, you probably ought to do this. So, um my my second oldest son Patrick uh, attended CMC out here in Leadville. Uh, he was in the ski area operations program, 
much to his mother's chagrin. He was a very good musician, <laughs> but he wanted to get in the ski business like the old man. My two older sons, he, Patrick and Tony, have both done that. Um, but anyways, um, I brought Patrick out here for a, um, a campus visit. I think it was in uh, the fall of 07, no, spring of 07. So I was, you know, still early on at Sugarbush. And while we were here, you know, talking to the guys at, at CMC, um, they said, yeah, you got to go out and, you know, take a look at, at Ski Cooper while you're here. So I did because Ski Cooper and CMC work closely with, uh, uh, we have an MOU for the kids that do uh, lab work here at the mountain, you know, room patrol, et cetera. So I came out and uh, visited the guys here, uh, Clint Yant and the crew who were the current management and, uh, you know, toured me around the mountain. I just, I looked at this place and it's like, this is virgin skiing, pardon my, my language, but it's just gorgeous, you know. Yeah. Um, it's not overbuilt, you know, with Chicago Ridge, quite frankly, you know, in the future, the sky's the limit as to what happens here. Mm. Um, and I thought, you know, I remember saying to Patrick when we, when we left on this little visit here to Kubra, I said, you know, if this job ever, you know, becomes available, um, I'd sure like to throw my hat in the ring. It would be a blast. So, um, you know, fast forward. <laughs> And uh, when it was my time to go at Sugarbush, I was, you know, looking around and, and uh, I got a I got a call from my son, Patrick, and he said, hey, dad, you're not going to believe this. This uh, job's open, you know, the GM job at, wow. at Cooper. So I threw my hat in the ring and uh, made a visit and got a job offer right away. Um, and I was just absolutely thrilled. Um I'm not sure my wife was that excited about moving across the country, <laughs> moving kids because I had two younger kids also, and you know, right. moving them from the school they were in love with. Uh, you know, there in in uh, in face in Vermont was was an interesting situation, but um, so that's kind of how this this whole thing happened. Um, and I will say, in between my first visit here and when, when I uh, got this job, uh, I came out here. I forget what I was doing probably go to Bumpapalooza at Winter Park with my kid <laughs> and uh, made a, um, a visit here because at that time um, we were having a lot of discussions at Sugarbush um, in the management meetings about how cool it would be to have um, a snowcat with a cabin yeah. to, to do things. And mm -hmm. uh, I found out that, you know, these guys at Cooper uh, had one of the Chicago Ridge cats that they were looking to, to get rid of because they had just uh, got up, updated their equipment a little bit. So visited here, uh, test drove this uh, cabin cat that they were trying to offload and made the arrangement. Sugarbush bought the uh, the cat. We brought it back, uh, refurbished it, put put the cabin on a different you know frame and different machine, and that turned into, <laughs> I believe, a very successful venture for Sugarbush. Um, you know, we were doing first tracks out of it. We were doing Alan's Lodge, Alan's Lodge dinners out of, you know, with that cat. Uh, the years I was there, you know, a handful of times we we uh, rented parts of Mount Ellen after we closed for right. for cat skiing, um, you know, yeah. using the Glen House as a base. Um, so that was a cool connection, too, uh, with Cooper. Um, so, you know, that sort of helped solidify, you know, how I felt about Cooper and maybe how they felt about me. I'm not sure they all... We're so happy about that. But, no, just, kidding. <laughs> just kidding. Yeah. So that's that's the story of how I, I landed here. 
So you got the keys, you got the top job. And, and I have to imagine there's a psychological adjustment here, Dan, because you're at Sugarbush in Vermont. That's one of the top dogs in the East. I, I say it's top five. You know, you got Stowe, you got Killington, you got Jay, you got Sugarloaf. It, it, Sugarbush doesn't have many peers. It gets a lot of snow. It has great terrain. It has huge infrastructure. Now you're going out to Colorado, which is, is the, you know, the spiritual center of U.S. skiing, but your neighbors are Vail, Beaver Creek, Copper Mountain, Keystone, Breckenridge, A Basin. Suddenly, you're not the big dog anymore. What was that adjustment like just going from standing on the top of the hill to kind of looking up at everybody from the bottom? Well, yeah, that was a, the, an interesting transition, um, undoubtedly. Uh, you know, I looked at Ski Cooper when I got here, and um, obviously it's a beautiful place. Um and I thought that there's probably more opportunity here mm-hmm. than there is any place that I've been because it's very underdeveloped. And let me be clear. I don't want this place to be overdeveloped. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's got a special place. You know, it's the home of the 10th Mountain Division. It's, there's a lot of reasons why Ski Cooper needs to have to maintain its feel um, and, and character and, and hominess and family orientation and all of those things. But I will tell you that there are more opportunities for expanding the terrain and growing this place. I, I like to refer to it as, you know, having it evolve or grow organically, mm-hmm. maintaining, you know, the, the character. So that's what I really looked at. The other thing that I looked at, Stuart, to be honest with you, I mean, I, I always loved being involved with snowmaking because it's such a cool technology and everything. But truth be told, been around it a long time. Uh, worked at a place once that didn't have snowmaking at Powder Mountain. Every place else I worked, I was involved with snowmaking. And uh, Ski Cooper is blessed in you know with elevation and everything. We do not have snowmaking. Um, our neighbors, Monarch and us, are the only ones in the state that have none. And I will tell you, there is uh, there's definitely an advantage if you get enough snow to being a natural snow area. It is, it's, the skiing is phenomenal every day. When somebody tells me it's getting icy, I tell them to go home because they have no idea what they're talking about. Um, so, you know, looking at all of those things, looking at the facilities here, which, you know, we're, we're aging, uh, to be kind, um, you know, looking at how the operation was set up. I mean, I came in, we had, um, we had a, a food and beverage department that was concessioned out. Um, mm-hmm. And there were a lot of things that were just, you know, I mean, it was kind of cool. It was real old school feel, but it wasn't effective in, you know, bottom line stuff and efficiency and whatnot. So um, I guess I looked at Cooper and I looked over the hill, you know, I've skied all those areas, you know, the Elbury Creek, the whole nine yards. And I thought, this is really cool. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it was, it's kind of like, you know, for lack of a better term, it's like, you know, a, a new sandbox to build stuff. Yeah. In. And I have, you know, with the people that are working here, um, you know, some of the folks have been here for quite some time and I've fired some new folks. Um, we have been able to do some really, really cool stuff here. Um, so for me, you know, I've been involved at, you know, a, a huge area at Killington and a very large area relatively speaking, at Sugarbush, but involved in small ones. But I looked at this as this is kind of a middle ground 
you know, with the way we've grown over the past five or six years, um, you know, we're getting more into that middle-sized area out here now. Um, so for me, I, I feel really good about that, about growing this place, about changing the flow and the operations. Um, and a couple of years ago, we actually, you know, cut new trails on some steep terrain that Cooper doesn't really have any of <laughs> up until then, <laughs> uh, installed a, a lift. Uh, and there are things that we can talk about in the future too, at this point in time. So, yeah, no, let's, let's get into, let's get into Tennessee, Tennessee Creek Basin, uh, that, that expansion. Tell, tell us about that and, and why you added it and how it's changed the mountain. It's a, it, it's a whole different, you know, vibe now. Um, you know, Cooper was always like, I would put up the terrain here, uh, as near the top, if not the top you know, lower level intermediate terrain in the country. It's, it's sweet. It's wide. It's mostly gentle. There's some more challenging stuff for intermediate skiers. Um, some really nice tree skiing. The snow is good. Um, but you know, we really didn't have that steeper, more challenging terrain. You know, we'd get a family here for Christmas holidays or, you know, spring break or whatever. And, um, occasionally we would, would, uh, you know, lose half the family because they would want to go someplace where there's more challenging skiing. So we took a look at that. And fortunately, in our original master, not the original one, the last master development plan that was filed with the Forest Service, there was uh, uh, a means to to expand into what is now the Tennessee Creek Basin, uh, you know, via that. Obviously, we've got to go through the permitting and everything. Uh, but... So we took a look at that, took a look at the profile back there and said, well, this is cool. You know, it's accessible. Um, it provides, you know, the pitch that we're looking for. Um, it's, it's, it's just kind of that missing link, missing element here at Cooper. And yeah, so we, we, uh, we got together, um, you know, with uh, some folks and drew up, uh, you know, an initial uh, design Worked on our permitting, um, got everything approved, uh, got our lift uh, approved and everything, and uh, opened the thing up. I think it was in January two years ago, and then we had COVID, so we didn't have much of a season with it. But, uh, you know, last year it was really, really um, a success story. You know, we had people coming here just because, you know, they say, hey, we got, we got to check out this new area. We've been to Cooper before. It's a great place. But... Um, so now, you know, I think, I think it has been successful in, you know, drawing and maybe hopefully, you know, helping to keep people here. Um, because I'll tell you what, it is, it is some, uh, there's some tricky terrain back there. There's some tight tree skiing akin to, you know, some of the tree skiing that, uh, is at Mount Ellen, sugar bush, you know, there's some mm -hmm. tight trees there and some steep stuff. It's a lot like that. Um, so I, we, we all feel that it's, it's been, uh, you know, a very, worthwhile uh, venture, you know, investing in that. And I'd like to, to point out that we don't uh, carry any debt here at Cooper. Mm. We all, everything nice. we do, uh, we do from operating and, uh, you know, banking money and, and being conservative moving forward. Um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of the story. And I'm very proud, you know, to have been involved in, you know, trying to help make that happen. That's interesting that you say that, Dan, about not having any debt. Your partner mountain, Platykill out in New York, um, I know Lazo Vete quite well, and and he prides himself on that as well. It, yeah. it's, and, and, and he has kind of a similar situation. You know, he's running 
uh, right down the road from Hunter, which is owned by Vale, and Wyndham, which is where very well financed, and Bel Air, which is owned by New York State. And he just does a little bit every year. He puts in a little bit of snowmaking. He he puts in lifts he can, but no debt, and he prides himself on that. Yeah, that's that's incredible. I I love that place. By the way, it's a cool yeah, it's great. A, a similar vibe to us, I think. Uh, it's it's a lot of fun there. But yeah, you know what? Uh, I always look at it this way. You know, I mean, I would rather be patient. You know, sometimes it's tempting to to restructure how we do things. So you know, uh, we, we want to make some big uh, impact improvements on the front side of the mountain here, lift, etc. But um, I can sleep at night. <laughs> You know, yeah. not worrying about uh, servicing that debt. Um, so it's, I think we're, we all take, you know, uh, pride, if you will, in, in being able to to operate in such a way that we can bank money and, uh, you know, pull off these projects without, you know, getting into debt. So Dan, is that sense of physical uh, prudence, is that why you put a T-bar in back there? It's just a cheaper lift? Or do you feel like that was just a better lift for that terrain? Why, why do we have a surface lift back there? You know, honestly, Stuart, in terms of dollars and cents, it was it was a, a smaller capital outlay, but not as much smaller as everyone would think. Mm, okay, uh, really, it wasn't. Uh, no, it, that wasn't the the, the 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 entire reason. That that obviously comes into play. You know, you got to look at your wallet and say, what can I afford here? But I, I think it really kind of fit this area. I mean, it, it tied to history. You know, the original lift that was here for the tenth mountain training was a T bar. Um, then there was a T-bar installed on the Piney Basin, you know, the, the original backside of the mountain. Um, so it kind of kept that, that feel. The other thing that, you know, comes into play with me uh, is that, you know, we don't have a huge patrol staff here. And, you know, at, at this point, it's, it's growing, by the way. But occasionally we have power outages, we have issues, and it can be cold here. <laughs> Yeah. And, you know, aerial lifts and not a lot of people, um, you know, we have adequate people to, to, to rope you back our lifts. That's no problem. Good training. Everything's good to go. But I looked at, you know, that particular area um, in Tennessee Creek Basin and, you know, we thought, hey, you know, uh, that eliminates that stress and headache, too. And um, along with that, you know, if, if the lift goes down, you tell everybody to hop off, ski to the bottom, whatever. Um, it's a beautiful thing. Uh, along with that, uh, you know, it would have been a fixed grip chairlift that we would have put in back there. Quite frankly, it's a shorter, a shorter ride in terms of time on the T-bar because, you know, we run our line speed higher. Um, so you, you can lap that backside. I mean, you can burn yourself out in the morning if you want to. Um, right. So there were a lot of, a lot of reasons why we did that. Um, you know, cost definitely, as I said, did come into play, but that wasn't the, the big driver here. And how have lines been? Has that lift proven able to handle the volume of skiers that want to be back there? Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, things are just, you know, the, the day will come when, when it may have a problem. <laughs> but okay. quite frankly, you know, um, it, it with a higher line speed, it handles it quicker than a double chair would have. Right. So, right. yeah, I mean, occasionally we, we'll get a few people in line back there. But for the most part, you know, people are still – a little skeptical and I'm glad they are. It is, you know, we classify it as double diamond and for the most part, it truly is between steepness and trees. So while we get a lot of people back there, you know, the, uh, the bulk of our customers or guests are still skiing, you know, um, the front side and the Piney Basin uh, side of the hill, you know, 
this 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 uh, this segment of our, our market is just still in the growing phase. So we're not we're not up against the wall with uh, long lines or anything. Yeah, and I have to say, Dan, that looks like a pretty broad piece of terrain where folks can spread out. Uh, tell us a little bit about the the snow back there. D- does the back side of the mountain get more snow than the front side that you've been serving for so long? Yeah, I think you know, it, it, ranking the three sides of the hill, you know, the Piney Basin area um, gets the most snow, holds it best. Um, but quite frankly, last year our, our snow depth measurements in the Tennessee Creek Basin area were much higher than I had anticipated. You know, the front side of the mountain, you know, the west, western, mostly western uh, aspect um, gets the least. Um, but, you know, with all the uh, the trees and the canopy and everything in Tennessee Creek Basin, and it's, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of east, a little northeast. That's it's a good exposure, good aspect there. Um, it gets quite a bit of snow, and quite frankly, it holds it very well. People were nervous about it holding snow, but had no problem, you know, the last two years. I mean, we've all been skiing that area, uh, you know, get a, get a run with the patrol, you know, checking things out, blah, blah, blah. So we kind of had advanced uh, data on, you know, how the snow would be back there. But no, it gets it and it holds it real well. And, and stupid question from, from an Eastern city person. Um, do you have any avalanche mitigation? I mean, your mountain looks really protected, but uh, I, I'm not sure if that's something that's necessary. Well, you know, we do our uh, our patrol does uh, do analysis on a regular basis because we have a couple of uh, kind of open shoots that you know. I mean, I'm not talking about a cool art to uh, <laughs> help you or anything, but they're open and you know steep enough that we we keep an eye on them. Um, obviously, you know, when you go to the other side and get the Chicago Ridge, we have areas there that we do mitigate. But uh, in Tennessee Creek Basin, uh, we just keep an eye on things. You know, we have some areas of concern that we have marked out. Um, but so far, I, I think I think we're we're in pretty good shape with that. But I, I defer to my uh, to my patrol and the experts on that. All right, let's talk about your grooming philosophy a little bit. I, I really am very envious of this when I read it. And and Ski Cooper has sort of a a minimalist philosophy to keep the snow fresh. Just just talk about your choices uh, daily and how you manage that mountain so that there's always some groomers for the families to enjoy, but there's also some natural stuff for the rest of us who might want to just ski on that sort of uh, surface. Yeah. You know, the whole grooming thing, you know, there's, there's lots of schools of thought there. And I'm not saying, you know, one is right or one is wrong because each area is different and has, you know, to deal with different conditions. Uh, but, you know, we have really good quality snow here. Um, you know, several areas get really good quality natural snow. And there's a tendency because we've kind of all, you know, just fell into the, the, the whole trap of, you know, we have this equipment. It's got the capability. Let's do it. Let's do it every day, you know. Uh, and so we look at this, you know, what my philosophy is, you know, if it's good, why mess with it all the time? Um, you know, so we, we try to step, you know, we have our daily, you know, we, we make our, our grooming plan and, and we're very careful um, that, you know, we'll probably get, you know, we'll go two, three, sometimes four days between uh, grooming a particular trail. Obviously, there are a few, um, you know, main runs on the front side of this mountain that are very beginner centric, let's say. 
that we, you know, we probably stay on a little bit more often. Um, but we've gotten to a point now where, uh, like Molly Mayfield, the main thoroughfare down the front of the mountain is very wide. So we've gotten to a point where we just, we do half of it each night. So um, unless we get a, a big snowstorm, that, that changes the game, Stuart. But, you know, I, I believe firmly that, you know, we have, we have all uh, overgroomed for a long time, you know, particularly yeah. with the advent of the, um, with the winch cat, um, mm-hmm. you know, we're, 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 we're grooming things on a regular basis that, you know, I, I think is not necessary. So, you know, we, we're like, uh, you know, we've got really good snow. Let's not till it up. Let's not, you know, churn it up and, and, you know, center it and cause it to become an icier, harder product. Um, so yeah, that, that's kind of the deal. You know, we've got, we've got plenty of equipment. We just, we just get them buying, a, uh, to us, a, another new snow cat. Um, you know, grooming cat this year. Um, you know, we do, we groom quite a few acres, but uh, no, really, really try to keep it as natural as we can. Um, you know, um, I, I think that, you know, real skiing is in, in the real snow that's unfettered by, <laughs> by, by grooming technology. But I will tell you, I enjoy grooming technology too. So I get confused. Yeah. yeah. Dan, you're speaking my language. The, the, the East is, overrun with over grooming and uh and I, and I get that that's the demographics that we have out here yeah and that's what the skiers expect out here uh, but i do appreciate the skiers like killington like sugarbush like stowe like jay there's not many of them but some of them will keep it wild and have at least a balanced mountain which i know is much more common in the west but yeah in the east man i get so frustrated well you know to be honest when i went to sugarbush and was you know started out at mount ellen um I kind of made it my personal mission to, to, uh, help steer away from the heavy grooming. Right. Um, you know, again, you know, I mean, we've got this technology. If you're familiar with, with Mount Ellen, you know, at Sugarbush there, I am. Um, FIS is a, is a very steep slope. And, you know, for years, uh, ever since the advent of, you know, the technology of, of winching that trail and, you know, a few others there, we're getting groomed on a very regular basis. And quite frankly, mm-hmm. I personally find that to be more dangerous and creating more problems than just letting it alone. You know, even if you get into a slightly, uh, you know, hardened or near icy or condition, um, if you're patient with it, if you got to close it for a day, a little, little bit more snow, build up on it and, and bond and, and ski it. Um, and, you know, so I, I was always the guy in the snow plane going, come on guys, uh, please don't, uh, let's not groom cliffs let's not groom this and that it's going to come back it's going to be good skiing because once you get this stuff particularly man-made snow and i know there's there's good man-made snow out there but it will turn to a harder surface way more quickly under grooming than not obviously there are times when you have to you know if you have an ice event and everything that's a different story but i think we've all jumped in the cat too quickly and uh we're patient enough to to let things play out there's nothing i hate worse than going down a very steep slope that's just been groomed and is very hard and i feel like if i lose it i'm really gonna lose it yeah and you know what you're doing and, and you know when you get someone up there who's maybe not so good on skis and they have you know a 40 degree pitch and they lose control things can get really ugly absolutely absolutely so yeah i uh i try to shy away as much as we can obviously yeah. You know, the, the, the guests are looking for a certain uh, amount of, of group terrain. But uh, yeah, no, I'm, 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 I'm kind of that guy in the middle. 
All right. Well, no grooming in cat skiing. Tell us about your cat skiing operation. And and also, Dan, uh, just give us the, the big overview of it. But also, I believe you didn't run this operation last year. So tell us about it and if you intend to run the cat operation for 2021 to 22. Yeah, we suspended operations last year. Um, you know, our cat skiing operation is, is, uh, is pretty cool, kind of unique. Um, you know, we've been doing it for a long time, well, long before I got here. Um, so, yeah, last year, obviously, with the, uh, with the COVID situation, we, we pulled the plug um, because, you know, obviously, with, with everything going on, uh, nobody was certain and, you know, social distancing and yada, yada, yada. We just opted to, uh, you know, to eliminate the, the, the product for the year. Uh, you know, coming into it, this season, we're looking at a different model. We used to, to, to have an all-day uh, cat skiing program. You come in in the morning, get your get your uh, your peeps, and you know get some instruction and whatnot. Then you were out there all day. It was lunch out there, um, but because of the location logistics, um, it's it's kind of a tough tough operation to run from the front side of this mountain. It's a long ride to get to the ridge. Um, so we took a look at everything, and, and with the unknowns of COVID this year, quite frankly, we just we are opting to. Uh, to go into this thing with a little different model where it would be, um, you know, a single ride model or a multi-ride model uh, where we have a pickup point um, and you can get your, hopefully we can, we can have a, uh, you know, your ride loaded onto your, to your card, your RFID card. And um, I think what this does is it opens up the opportunity to, to experience cat skiing and that type of snow to a much wider audience than an all day product. That's got a pretty steep price tag to it. And it's also from, from up and the operational and it's much easier to manage than an all day program. Um, we get out there with an all day program. And if, if we have breakdowns or bad weather, we're dealing with, uh, you know, disgruntled folks on the trip and everything else. So it basically, this simplifies things. It, as I said, it opens up the opportunity to so many more people. And that's kind of our mission at Cooper. We try to keep our prices rational and we try to to introduce many more people uh, to the sport of skiing in in all of its different varieties uh, than most areas do. So that's kind of where we are uh, with this season, Stuart, with the the Ridge. You know, we don't have all the ducks lined up yet. We're still working on some details. Um, And we're going to have to be very careful again, too, with with uh, the whole COVID thing, because, you know, with the ups and downs, uh, you know, that can change a game at any point in time, like it did, you know, in March, two years ago. <laughs> right. Yeah. That, that, that's a really interesting model, Dan. And that's actually the model that Sugar Loaf in Maine uses to access their burnt mountain. So they have that whole sort of side of the mountain bracket basin. that's basically just wide open skiing. And then you can take a cat up to the top of Burnt Mountain, and they've been trying that out for the last several years, and I think they're really happy with that model. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure they are. You know, and then it, uh, like I said, it just it's it's a lot simpler approach, and I just I like the idea of getting more people involved with it too, and not having you know such a high price tag on it. I know a number of areas out here, you know, do something similar, um, but yeah, no, we're we're looking forward to trying it. Hopefully, uh, old man COVID, you know, doesn't get too involved here because you know stuffing 12, 13 people in a, in a very small space like that, even even given, you know, masking and vaccination, or whatever, uh, is still a little bit precarious. Yeah. 
So you you have 2,600 acres back there, Dan, and you mentioned the possibility of future expansions for Cooper. Is there a world in which some of the Chicago Ridge cat skiing terrain could become part of the lift served experience? Is that what you're saying? Or, 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 or did you have something else in mind for future potential expansions at Ski Hooper? No, absolutely. That is on the table. Uh, okay. We worked with uh, the Forest Service last year um, in the summer and fall of 2020. Um, we were, we were uh, updating our special use permit uh, because we we have a, a kind of a partner operation um, to our west here, the Tennessee Pass Nordic Center Tie Hall runs a really nice operation here for um, for a number of activities: snowshoeing, cross country skiing, um, off the grid dining. Um, he's got a really cool operation. But we we uh, we changed our got an amendment to our special use permit um, so that he could have uh, he could change his permit and be able to do some things differently. So we had to structure uh, a contract and MOU between these two entities. Forest Service had to be involved. While we're doing this, you know, I kind of got a brainstorm in my eyes. We were in a meeting one day. I said, well, what, basically what we're doing for Tennessee uh, Pass Nordic Center is very similar to what we could do um, on part of Chicago Ridge um, you know, due to its uh, classification in the uh, Forest Service plan. So everybody kind of looked around the table and said, well, that, you know, it doesn't sound like an impossible idea. So we worked on that. It really didn't take long. Um, and we ended up annexing, I call it annexing. It was a, an amendment to our special use permit boundary area. We added about, uh, I think about between 11 and 1200 acres to wow. our existing 1100 acres. Um, so it kind of more than doubled the size of our special use permit area. Wow. And, um, so we're in the process right now. I mean, that's done. So we have we have like annexed this much of the area. Right now, we're uh, working on finishing touches and we're working with the Forest Service on uh, getting our master development plan updated um, to include, uh, you know, lifts um, on Chicago on, on that part of Chicago Ridge, which is some absolutely gorgeous terrain. Um, Central Basin areas, we call it back there, and. Uh, it's just some, some phenomenal skiing there that we hope, you know, it's in our, it's in our plan um, to, to get back there in a number of years and, uh, you know, create some lift served skiing there, uh, opening up, you know, that type of snow to even more people. Uh, you know, we have a pretty aggressive uh, five-year plan in place here that includes, uh, you know, obviously you got to start at the ground, things people don't like to talk about, like, you know, uh, sewer uh, your wastewater treatment, you know, water, uh, all of that parking, new lodge. Um, we're hoping to put a new lift up the front side of the mountain to, to feed all these other areas that we're, you know, hoping to create. Uh, but yeah, to, to get back to your question. Yeah. The Chicago Ridge is definitely, uh, it's now part of the game plan, you know, as a result of getting it, uh, brought into our special use per- permit boundary area. So, so Dan, based on, all of the plans you're kicking around right now, how big could the lift serve portion of Ski Cooper get? In terms of acreage, Stuart, or? Yeah. You know, right now we're we're just shy of 500, you know, skiable acres, you know, including our tree skiing inbounds here. Because a lot of this terrain is above tree line and kind of in open areas even below tree line, 
it would probably take our acreage um, to. I'm just taking a guess. Don't anybody come shoot me over this. <laughs> probably, uh, you know, 1,200 acres. Wow. 12 to 14. Wow. And it would it would take our vertical if we were to go to the, the whole way to the highest point in the new uh, the new area on Chicago Ridge. We'd probably be talking, you know, 2,200 vertical as opposed to the current 12. Wow, that big big changes that that really puts Ski Cooper into a different class. It does. I would have to say. Yeah. And, and and what's your timeline for all that, Dan? You know, we're we're looking at you know within the next uh, five years. You know, having all the infrastructure, you know, the wastewater and all those things taken care of, the lodge built, uh, the, you know, the, the, the bear that we're wrestling with is, you know, do we want to continue to depend on our, our uh, the, the double chair lift and the pummel lift that we have to take people, you know, up the mountain on the front side to feed these things and put in um, a lift at, on Chicago Ridge before putting in a new lift on the front of the mountain. That's kind right. of the quandary that we're up against right now. Right. Uh, there's many ways to look at that. You know, we could we could go back to Chicago Ridge and, you know, drop in, um, to start things out, maybe drop in another T-bar. Um, there wouldn't be much cutting there. It's pretty open. Um, you know, the other train of thought is, hold off on that. Let's get the, let's say we put in a quad, whether it's detachable or not, it's a matter of dollars and cents. <laughs> um, yeah. But... But, uh, you know, do that first, uh, you know, to make sure we can feed everything. So we're kind of trying to work through that. But, Stuart, honestly, you know, to, to get to, to a situation where we've, you know, maybe have a couple lifts on Chicago Ridge, a new lift on the front side of the mountain, we're probably talking, you know, seven or eight years, um, you know, to get to that point built on our current internal funding mechanism. So long-term plan, physically responsible, like you said. Uh, so, so looking at your lift fleet, Dan, I know you said you know you're not quite sure what you're gonna do with it yet. Uh, you have a 1973 Hall double. That's sort of your workhorse off the front side. You have that Poma lift off the back side. You have a triple that dates to 1983, and then you have that nice new T-bar. What's your wish list as you look to grow Ski Cooper over this next decade? Well, in terms of you know the current lift fleet we have. Um, you know, the, the hall lift, the, the uh, originally a 73, that was basically re-engineered and rebuilt in about 20 years ago. SeaTech uh, came in, they put an entire new drive terminal at the top of the mountain with new, new drive system and everything else. Um, also a new return terminal at the bottom. Um, so, you know, and I will say that we have a very thorough and aggressive um, lift maintenance program here. Honestly, I... I believe it's top notch. Um, so that lift is to me, it's got, it's got life left in it. We have very few problems with it. Um, so that lift is good. The, uh, the triple, the, it's a Palma alpha triple. I think it might've been one of the first ones that was ever deployed by Palma. It also has had a lot of upgrading. Um, as a matter of fact, we just now got done. Uh, with the installation and testing um, of a new, complete new drive system for that lift. Um, and last year we did a uh, new hydraulic tensioning system, new all, new brake system. Um, so we've really kept up, you know, with upgrading these lifts. So when you look at the year they were installed, it doesn't really line up with the condition of the lift. Um, you know, since they are the main workhorses here, 
we spend money and time making sure that they're as uh, you know up to date as possible. When you talk about a potential quad up the front, would you be taking down the double, or would that be a parallel lift? No, it would be it would be in addition. The, the double would stay. Um, I, I I'm not opposed to redundancy. <laughs> yeah, they are after all machines. Um, yep. But yeah, you know, in an ideal world, we could put in a, a detachable quad. Probably uh, that's a lot of dollars. You know, that could that could drive decisions. But we would probably have that lift. Uh, uh, the bottom terminal would be a, a slightly lower spot than, than our double now, so you don't have to walk up to it. And it would it would terminate uh, pretty much at the top of the mountain where the current uh, Piney Basin Triple and our patrol headquarters are located. So that you can access everything from that point. So big, so big plans for the lift fleet TBD. It sounds like. Yeah. I just want to ask about. You said that you don't have snowmaking, and and you rely all on natural. How much of a relief was that coming from the east, where if you don't have aggressive and widespread snowmaking, you're not opening. I mean, maybe Sugarbush could do it a couple months a year, and I know they certainly don't have it up on. Uh, Castle Rock. Yeah. But how how much of a relief was it to just have that whole element of the operation and just not have to worry about it? Well, it's it's phenomenal. Uh, but I will say, you know, my first the, I got here in the summer of 2012 and that was following, you know, a pretty, pretty rough drought year. I felt bad for the people mm-hmm. that were here before me. Uh, yeah. It was tough. And that that drought, you know, the conditions uh continued here, you know, at Cooper until, you know, late, late in the fall, early winter, you know, I mean, it was getting into December and, you know, you could not ski here. And I thought, oh gosh, you know, what have I done? <laughs> right. But uh, we did, you know, we, we started getting some small storms and uh, Tim Kerrigan, who's our vice president of mountain operations at that point in time, uh, I was chatting with him and he said, listen, yeah, we don't have it yet, but once we get the snow here, and we'll get it soon, don't worry. He goes, it lasts, it'll last. You know, there's never been a winter when it just doesn't eventually get here and we have it until June. I think he was right. I think we opened up, we were late. It was December 15th or 18th or something like that, which was later than we wanted to open. But it's not all winter. Um, and <laughs> since then, we haven't had, you know, many issues. A couple of years ago, we had a, a drier winter, but, uh, for the most part, you know, we, we we got enough snow to open, you know, mid-November, sometime between there and early December comfortably. And then, you know, we, we close in April. We could be open until June. Um, when you say you're open until June, do you, does that mean deep coverage, top to bottom? Oh, yeah, we could be open normally. Okay, this yeah. not always. Don't write that one down. <laughs> but normally, we, we could be open, you know, uh, you know, 70 80% top to bottom in wow. early June. Um, so why don't you? Because people stop skiing. There are, there, there are really, honestly, there are two games in this country, <laughs> yeah. and I've worked at one of them, that, yeah. that are like the late guys. And yeah. the, the other guys, you know, Al Hensroth over at A Basin. You know, obviously, it's Killington and A Basin, early and late. Loveland is early. Not, they don't go quite as late. A couple of the Vail resorts do it. But, you know, the, the uh, our market, you know, our skiers, they, they do other things, you know, when the sun comes out in the spring, everybody gets out their golf clubs, their boats, their bikes. And uh, there, there is a, it's a shrunken market at that point in time. And it's simply 
you know, unless it's it's for a, a marketing ploy, there's not a lot of dollar value in, in my opinion, at least, in trying to stay open late. It's very, you know, pretty much everybody out here, you know, I mean, all the people around us, you know, the smaller areas, even the bigger areas, they close up about the same time we do because there's simply not enough uh, business to to uh, stay open. That's That's just the way it is. Well, you do give your pass holders a nice long season. Like you said, you're you're looking to close April 17th this coming season. And so so let's talk about your pass, Dan. I think you have one of the most interesting season passes in the country. It kind of doubles as its own little mega pass or almost like an indie pass. Tell us about your Ski Cooper season pass. Uh, it's a cool thing. Um, <laughs> it's evolved into this, uh, yeah, mega partner, if you will, pass. Right. I think we got 50 or... So, uh, partners and the way it works is, um, you know, if, if you buy the Cooper pass, you know, you can get, uh, with, with maybe one exception, you get three complimentary days at all of our, um, partner resorts, which is kind of amazing. I mean, and you know, we have some bigger, bigger areas and resorts that we're partners with. We have a lot of medium size and a lot of small ones too. So it's, it's a, a very di- diverse group. Unlike, you know, if you're getting into Epic or, uh, you know, the Altera or Icon Pass, et cetera, um, that's, you know, those, those are obviously big flagship areas and that's, those are great programs if that's what you want to do. But I think we have a real, real flavor selection, you know, and we're all over the country and um, it's, there's no hassle involved. Um, you know, like I said, if you buy our pass, you can, come back and ski at, uh, you know, Seven Springs in Pennsylvania or, you know, wherever. Um, so I, I think it's cool. Um, and vice versa for our partners, they can, they can come here, which is, um, which is really cool. Um, so yeah, it, it's, you know, we had partners for quite some time and, and I wasn't sure what direction to go with it. And Dana Johnson, our, uh, marketing director is really hot on the idea. She enjoys going out and, you know, meeting people and, you know, introducing them to this whole partnership thing. And she's done a great job, you know, and uh, so, yeah, we love it. You know, we, it, it definitely, um, it definitely enhances our past sales, um, you know, because of the opportunity for people to ski in different areas um, across the country. Even. So I, I think it's really cool. And the price point is just phenomenal. Um, you know, we actually, when COVID came along, we had to, like a lot of other places, we, you know, I took a gamble. I dropped our prices a lot. Um, and so we got a lot of new people in. And now it's like, my gosh, we have, I think we have pass holders in, I don't know, 40 states. Oh, geez. You know, which were a, a smaller area. I mean, the Colorado thing matters, okay? Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. But as a smaller area, that's that's pretty phenomenal. Yeah. Uh, how many passes are you selling, Dan? We are, oh, gosh. You mean in terms of... Uh, Sheer numbers. I mean, we probably yeah. we probably are going to be in the in the vicinity of uh, seven or eight thousand individual passes this year. Wow! Yeah, it's it's grown tremendously. And you talked about the price. So that price was two hundred ninety nine dollars for the preseason sale, and two forty nine if you were renewing. And it's gone up since then. But you are really putting this at a very attractive price point. Yeah. Yeah, we are. And, you know, I think people recognize that, you know, we've gotten a lot of mileage out of it. Um, I think word has gotten around that, hey, this is really cool. Um, So, you know, we 
we feel like it's been a, a very successful thing. Uh, you know, we, we track, uh, you know, where people are coming from, where our visits are coming from on the, in the partner areas. And it's really, it's very interesting um, where they're coming from. Obviously, you know, there are quite a few from our Colorado partners, but geez, I mean, it's all over the place. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, you, 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 there's a there's a distinct difference in the Ski Cooper Pass and some of these other passes. So the, a lot of ski areas out west have built these reciprocal coalitions in Loveland and Monarch and Sunrise and Powderhorn, all in Colorado, all have really extensive networks of reciprocal partners. What what Ski Cooper has done differently is is that your partner network is all over the country. You have them in New England, you have them in Pennsylvania, you have them in the Midwest, whereas most of the rest of, the, of those mountains I just mentioned, their partners are concentrated in the West, Colorado and West. So, you know, New Mexico, Tahoe, Upper Rockies, all that. So I don't really see this as a draw for your own pass holders. I don't think the Ski Cooper pass holders are saying, oh, I want to go ski Pennsylvania. So I, it seems like what you're trying to do, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, is is for the folks out in these areas, you can buy this pass, ski your local, and then come to Cooper on vacation. Is that the kind of strategy you're going after here? You know, a, a little bit, Stuart, but it, it started out more, you know, while while we are partners with, you know, uh, areas at a distance, smaller, mid-sized areas, back east and all, we now have a pretty nice uh platter, if you will, of ski resorts in the West, you know, that we're partners with, you know, we're in Idaho, we're in Utah, we're in New Mexico, we're in California. And we now are seeing a lot of our folks taking advantage of that. Um, you know, if somebody chooses to buy our pass um, with hopes of skiing, you know, uh, areas in, in, in their region, that's great. You know, that's kind of a, uh, an added benefit, if you will. But, you know, that wasn't our original intent. And we certainly don't go out and, and you know, promote it like that. Um, if somebody recognizes that, you know, more power to them. I think it's a great deal. And then they also have the opportunity. I think there is a draw to to uh, to be able to come here to Cooper, to go skiing. Like I said, when I was a kid, I want to go to Killington. I want to go to Vermont. You know, a lot of people still have that desire. I want to go to Colorado and ski. And this gives them the opportunity. I mean, with three days coming out of here, you know, if you plan your trip, right, it's a, it's a pretty inexpensive adventure when you, you know, take the $200 lift ticket a day off, you know, some places where yeah. you're going to go. So yeah, it's a, it's an interesting mix, but you know, our objective was to, to compel people to buy our pass, you know, to, to ski here and to take advantage um you know, our people be able to take advantage of, you know, skiing some other areas. Um, yeah. But you do mail them. So if folks in those 40 states should be getting an envelope with that Ski Cooper Pass. Yep, we do. By the, uh, you know, by sometime later in November, they should start arriving. Um, so, yep, they'll have their pass and, and hopefully we see them this winter. You know, one of the short shortcomings, I think, of these um, reciprocal passes Dan, is that there's so many rules and so many exceptions. If you look at, for example, the Powder Alliance, um, it can be hard to use those days. What you've managed to do or what Dan has managed to do, and you can credit whoever the credit is due to here, is you have this huge coalition, almost 50 partners or maybe more. And there's only two mountains that have blackouts, Brundage and Diamond Peak. How did you negotiate that for, for, for to have such consistent access for your pass holders? Because that's very hard to do. 
Yeah, you know, when we first talk to people, you know, there's there's always pushback on that very thing because they're like, oh, um, you know, that's, you know, we're, we're going to be flooding. <laughs> You're going to be flooding us on, you know, busy days, weekends and all that. And, you know, my response to that is, I want you to really think about this for a minute, okay? <laughs> we are, you know, the areas in the West that we're partners with here are at a distance, you know, with the exception of our locals, you know, we're Monarch and Loveland and those guys. We all kind of understand you're going to get a number of people, particularly with kids racing programs. Uh, mm-hmm. But everybody else, you know, like, uh, for instance, I, I forget, I don't know if we had a discussion with Powder Mountain, Utah, we're partners there. And um, I don't think it was them. It was somebody west of us. And, you know, they were pushing back on this very thing. I said, how many people from Ski Cooper do you really think are going to show up on your doorstep on any given day? Really? Because we have 50 partners. Right. You know, eventually, you know, I, I, think, I don't know. Everybody looks in the mirror and goes, it's probably true. Um, yeah. So it's just a nice perk for our people, you know, whether you're mm-hmm. Powder Mountain or or, uh, you know, Snow Valley in California or wherever. Um, I, I think that everybody just kind of stops and thinks, because I had to when I first got here, too. I'm like, well, what does this mean? Right. And, you know, we have data. We have numbers. I can tell these people, you know, how, what the impact is on us. And, uh, you know, for our people, particularly since if you have a Cooper Pass, you can ski at 50-plus resorts. Everybody is not going to show up at the same area. Yep. It just yeah, isn't going to happen. So that's kind of the, the rationale there, and that's how we – have gotten, you know, talked to, there are, to be honest with you, Stuart, there are a number of areas that simply refused. They thought, mm-hmm. you know, this is going to have a big impact. And, uh, but some of them have come back to us over the last couple of years and said, eh, let's give it a try. And, um, you know, haven't really had a, a major issue with it because it's kind of diluted with that many partners. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So it sounds like it's continuing to evolve. And I have to be honest with you, Dan, I thought that when the Indy Pass came along, it was going to kill this model. Because the Indy Pass model is built on a daily payout. So every time a skier comes and redeems an Indy Pass, an Indy Pass partner, that mountain gets a percentage of what the lift ticket would have been, as opposed to the system that you have with your partners where they're just comp tickets. I comp your pass holder, you comp mine. So I thought, okay, Indy Pass is a better model. These reciprocal things were a stopgap, and now they're going to go away. But they haven't gone away. <laughs> they seem very much alive and well. You have a number of mountains that are actually partners with you and Indy Pass. Uh, why do you think that this model of comping tickets is proven so resilient, Dan? Well, you know, you know, regarding the Indy Pass and you know a few other uh, passes out there, I have a lot of respect, you know, for for you know what the the model they've created. You know, I've I've talked extensively um, with Doug Fish. You know, he was here a couple of years ago visiting, and uh, I think it's a great product. You know, if that's if that's your game, um, I believe that you know what we've developed here with a number of partners has been compelling enough to mostly regional people around here in Colorado to have them buy our pass. Um, and I think that the revenue that we've generated by having the perk of having 50 resort partners, that revenue is greater. And this is anecdotally speaking, I don't have any real hard data here, but you know, I, I know how Indy Pass works and a couple of the other ones. I think we're able to actually sell more passes and, and do better financially with this model than we would be having people send their money 
for an, an additional pass product to IndyPass or, or whoever it is. And again, I fully respect what they're doing. I think they're very successful. But for us, you know, I, I just think having it as part and parcel of our pass is compelling enough to generate more business for us. And um, so, yeah, that, that's kind of my take on, on that whole thing. And I think that's why we're successful. If we only had a couple of partners, eh, I don't think so. Even if we had 10 or 15, yeah. I don't think so. But because of the, you know, the, the, the locations, the geography of, of where we're at, you know, from Maine to California um, and everywhere in between almost, um, I, I think it is, I think it is pretty compelling and it's, it's brought us in some revenue that, that I don't think we could match uh, with a, with a program like Indy. Do, do you have a uh, grasp on what percentage of your lift tickets are comped for partners? To visit Cooper, I think it's somewhere in the area of uh, six or seven percent, Stuart. Enough that you can manage. All right. Well, it will be interesting to see if it, it, how that evolves, Dan, and, and if you ever do decide to join an indie or another coalition. Um, real, real quick before I let you go, uh, Dana sent me some information uh, a few weeks ago that Ski Cooper had had decided to raise its starting wage to fifteen twenty five per hour. Talk about the decision to do that and how that has worked out for you. Well, you know, um, it, these are difficult times <laughs> yeah. in, in the labor market. Um, right. You know, we have always, uh, you know, since my, since my second year here, I guess, we have always, we've made a, a kind of a pact with ourselves to, to stay ahead of the Colorado state minimum wage, which is higher than most state minimum wages, by the way, by quite a bit. <laughs> And so we've, you know, given where we are and, you know, the, the whole, you know, economics of it all, we've always decided to stay ahead um, by a margin of the Colorado minimum wage. Um, but, you know, given what's happened over the last year and a half, two years with COVID and, you know, the uh, you know, all the stimulus payments and, and everything that's going along with that, um, you know, and rising costs and everything, you know, we were pretty happy. We had we had what I thought was a, a good starting wage, and mm-hmm. um, you know, it's I'm sad to say a lot of people don't believe in having to start at a wage, <laughs> but mm-hmm. uh, it's just simply the way it is. So um, we took a look at you know what was going on around us, and and uh, you know, re- realizing the cost of housing and the cost of food and the cost of transportation, you know, for the folks that, that are working here, it's a different world than it was a number of years ago. And uh, took a look at what was going on, uh, you know, all around us, you know, with the Vail Resorts and uh, with Powder Corp and even the, you know, the smaller areas like us. And we thought, well, okay, um, we got to get people to come here. We want them to be comfortable. And I think, as I stated earlier, when somebody was interviewing me, it honestly, for our people, it's the right thing to do. They've got to be able to, you know, to survive. And I'm not saying this rate as a starting rate. Is, is given everything, it's still a tough wage. But, you know, we looked at Vale and everybody else and they were kind of, you know, topped out at 15 bucks for a starting wage. So we just decided to up the ante a little bit, you know, get a little bit of attention and maybe try to get, get a few more people knocking on the door here. So far, it's, it's worked pretty well. You know, we've had a pretty good response, uh, you know, to people applying for positions. Um, I, I wanted to, to mention, you know, in this conversation, Stuart, that, you know, people look at that, you know, our 15 and a quarter, you know, uh, 
and there, there was a little bit of a, you know pushback on that. Oh, that's not really a living wage. And we did our research with the MIT thing and all that. And um, I think it was MIT. I'm not sure. But, but at the end of it, it, it's important for everybody to realize that that's our starting wage, just like every other skier and ski resort. That's the starting wage for our, our, our intro grade. You know, we have five different grade levels for hourly people here. Okay. So when we bumped up, you know, to 15 and a quarter, that was like a $2.75 jump. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. we, we looked at all the other grades and, and where everybody was coming in, you know, depending on your, you know, uh, your experience level and, you know, factors like that and, you know, increases you might have gotten in the past in the different grade levels, you are going to to realize an increase commensurate, uh, not identical, uh, but to, to that new starting rate. So all the nice. boats, all the boats rise at the same time. And I don't think a lot of people realize that it's not like mm. we pay everybody on the property 15 and a quarter. I mean, we have starting rates up in the 20s and right, that right. go up within the grade. Uh, so, you know, I think we are being fair and we are trying to, you know, to help our people. Because, as I said many times before, if it weren't for these frontline people out there, we would be nothing. Uh, right. So, you know, we want them to be as comfortable as possible. Uh, we're looking at some other perks for our folks. Um, but yeah, I, I think what we did was, was, you know, I, am the guy that kind of likes to try to hold off. Danny gets upset with me every year because I hold off on our pricing, you know, publishing things and like that. And I, I wanted to watch what was going, going on with this wage thing and watched it. And here we are 15 and a quarter entry level, lowest level jobs. So, so that was a nice jump. And as you mentioned, you're competing against Vale. Uh, vale is instituting a vaccine mandate for its employees. Are you doing something similar or have you considered something similar? Yeah, we're considering all options, Stuart. Um, I, I really just hope and pray this thing comes to an end. Um, you know, I'm very reluctant to absolutely mandate, you know, that, that each one of my employees uh, has to get a vaccination. There are a lot of there are a lot of things to consider there, and I, I really don't want to get too far into that. Um, obviously, with the OSHA ETS coming down, um, everybody with 100 or more employees has a couple of options. One is mandating 100 percent you know, vaccination or um, mandating vaccination or weekly uh, COVID testing. Mm-hmm. Um or if you're 99 employees or under, which is, doesn't work for us unless we split up and have some different companies, which we're not going to do at this point. Um, right. Yeah. Um, so, you know, most likely we will be going to the, you know, kind of, I call it the hybrid model where we will, um, we're looking into the, uh, the mechanisms of, you know, testing weekly mm-hmm. here at the mountain. I think a, a pretty good chunk of our, employees and returning employees are going to uh, be vaccinated. But, uh, you know, I, I think in, in good conscience, I would like to, to have the choice and then, you know, roll in, you know, some some uh, restrictions, you know, perhaps indoor masking for employees. We're, we're not there yet, so I don't want to say anything concrete. But, yes, we will be addressing this, um, you know, within the next two to three weeks and we'll have something out there published because it right now, a lot of employees, uh, you know, the areas that have mandated uh, vaccinations, we're getting calls and uh, emails from, from employees there asking us, well, what are you guys going to do? Uh, if you're not, we'll come and, and talk to you about working there. So it's, 
it, the whole thing is a, a real messy situation. Um, and unfortunately, I think it's going to continue for a while. So <laughs> I think that's right. All right, Dan, let's wrap it up with this. Uh, last year, the Leadville Herald reported that Ski Cooper had its best season ever, both for revenue and skier visits. Talk about building off the momentum on that so that you have an even better season in 2021 to 22. Yeah, I, I, you know, looking at, you know, the numbers we did last year, our visits were up about somewhere between eight and 10% from two years ago. I don't look at the, the year when we got shut down. Um, mm-hmm, we right. had a record year two years ago. We've had records every year for visitation for quite a number of years. But nice. we, we, we went up from two years ago from that record, you know, eight to 10% uh, in visits. Revenue was, was up a higher percentage than that. Um, and by the looks of our season pass sales as an indicator, um, we're hoping, you know, as long as we get snow, uh, that we will be able to uh, to have another great year. Um, you know, all the indicators, everything is looking great. Um, so yeah, we're we're very excited about it. We're prepared. We've done a couple new things. We we open we're opening up a new uh, Colorado Craft Beer Tap Room. Um, oh, nice. Which is going to be a lot of fun. Uh, strictly craft beer. It's called the Timberline Tap Room, and we've uh, also moved our retail shop into the same building, kind of next door. And that's going to be the Timberline Trading Post. So we have some new, you know, a guy once told me, first guy, well, second guy I worked for in the ski business, a guy named Joe Eichholz, he's passed away. Um, but he told me, skiers are finicky. You got to give them something, a little something new every year, not something big every year, but they want something new. <laughs> mm-hmm, right. I think he was right, you know, and we've, we've done a lot of different things in the lodges and everything. So, you know, building on, you know, the momentum from last year, the season pass sales and some new things that were, you know, putting out there uh, in addition to clearing the terrain a little better on uh, Tennessee Creek Basin. We, we firmly believe that if we get, you know, have a good snow year, we're going to have a very successful ski year. Well, Dan, lots of exciting things ahead. I wish you all the luck with it. Uh, I am very much looking forward to getting out to Ski Cooper to see it for myself. And I hope that as they continue to sell millions and millions upon millions of Epic Passes, uh, the folks who are tired of those lift lines look around and see Ski Cooper and come and give it a shot because I think you're doing some really amazing things there. So thank you so much for your time today. And I, I hope to see you this winter. I hope to see you too, Stuart. Thank you very much. That's Dan Torcell, president and general manager of Ski Cooper Colorado. That was incredible. What a thoughtful guy. That is someone with very deep industry experience guiding a very challenging situation to growth. And that is not easy to do, but he is doing it in a very deliberate way and it is really inspiring to watch. If you're new to the storm, if you found the podcast because of my interviews with the leaders at Aspen or Taos or Crystal, you may be asking yourself, hey man, what gives with this rinky-dink indie stuff? And I'll say, first of all, that I don't agree with that take at all. And the more the mega passes grow and the more crowded that those destination mountains get, the more appealing I find these smaller places especially on weekends and holidays. Second, I'll just say this, I am interested in the entire world of lift surf skiing. So you're going to find a lot of these little indie joints mixed in with the Giants. Look, I'll get you the headliners. I've got Jackson Hole and Steamboat on the schedule in the weeks ahead, but there will be plenty more like Ski Cooper as well. And as a matter of fact, there are plenty in the warehouse like that already if you wanna go search for them. Places like Montage Mountain, Pennsylvania, or Titus Mountain, New York, or Lonesome Pine, Maine, 
or Magic Mountain in Vermont or Berkshire East in Massachusetts. All amazing independent mountains. And hey, listen, if there's anyone in particular you want to hear from, please let me know, especially as I expand this thing across the country. And even better, if you run a resort of any size, anywhere, and you want to come on the podcast and rap about it, we will make that happen. Anyway, thank you all for listening. Please remember to subscribe to the free Storm Skiing newsletter at stormskiing.com. Also follow along on Twitter or Instagram at Storm Ski Journal. You can also find the storm on Facebook. Thank you all for listening. Stay well, stay safe. I'm Stuart Winchester, and I will talk to you again very soon. The Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.